Our theme for this year is feel the passion. Feel the passion. Don't just talk about it, feel it. I'm glad that there's some feeling, <laughs> if you please, in this thing in the kingdom of God. That we don't all just go by intellect. It's not just thought out, processed, cut and dried. But there's also some emotion in it. The Bible said the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, as you suppose, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's two-thirds of that then is emotion. Now then, looking at this thing about passion, I remind you that passion is what separates the winners from the also-rans and is what makes our lives powerful and worth living. Many people tread water. They just exist. Now, what makes someone enjoy life is passion. I want you to realize this. A lot of people, they're living, but they're not living because they don't have anything they're really passionate about. On the other hand, as I've already said, passion is responsible for literally every breakthrough that occurs in life. Whether it's in entertainment, you're a musician trying to make it big, whether you're in medicine, medical research, the race for the cure of a particular disease. You know what keeps driving people until they finally have a breakthrough? It isn't a salary. Because oftentimes when you're pushing for a breakthrough, you're in a position that is not being remunerated to the degree that you're giving. A young, starving musician, for example, or artist, or somebody aspiring to be an actor, or someone trying to launch their own business. You and I both know that if it were not for passion, there would be many an opportunity for somebody to shut up, close up shop, and go home and say, I just failed. Many people indeed do that very thing. But there are a few in any particular profession, any particular endeavor, who keep going, keep driving after everyone else feels like anyone with any sense of balance or reason or understanding would have already quit. You know who gets the breakthroughs? Those people who keep striving. Passion is responsible for every breakthrough in science, whether that's in nuclear physics, whether that's in the arena of, of uh, interplanetary exploration, no matter what it is, education, passion is what causes breakthroughs. Passion is the reason that someone masters their vocation instead of just existing on a job and drawing a salary. Passion is what makes you enjoy life. The problem is, is that sometimes, if I can say this carefully, and be aware of the fact that I want to encourage you rather than, than, than try to speak down to you like sometimes people try to do. I'm not here to chastise anybody, so I want to encourage you. And so the challenge then becomes if we have reached this place in our life that we're at right now, how do we find passion? Because tell somebody it's time to get there. Would you do that? You don't have passion yet. You need to find it. Reminds me of a joke, okay? I told this joke yesterday at our annual leadership meeting, 
And it was actually sent to me by a member of the church who is in Veterans Hospital, where he has been for several years. Brother Patrick God, wonderful brother. He has Lou Gehrig's disease. He can no longer speak. He, he has this little thing where he's able to send an email by breathing into, I think it is a straw, and somehow or other he's able to, all that's run through a computer. Don't even ask me how it works. And he sent me an email a couple of weeks ago with this joke in it. And when I got the email, I wondered, wow, that must have been a real challenge for him just to be able to send it out. But I read the email, and it was hilarious, and I want to pass it on to you. Listen, there was a football game. Speaking of football games in the Super Bowl today, there was a football game, perfect joke for today, and it was between the big animals and the little animals, okay? The big animals dominated the game at the end of the first half. The score was 60 to 0. The big animals ran off the field triumphantly. Went to their locker room, noticeably exhausted and dejected. The little animals limped off the field. Some of them even had to be carried off. In the locker room, the coach for the big animals yelled, in the second half, let's humiliate the little guys even more. Show no mercy, no mercy, no mercy, no mercy. The locker room is vibrating and echoing, reverberating with a sound. He said, let's go out there and score another 40 points and make it 100 to zero. The big animals were all charged up, and so when halftime ended, they quickly ran back out on the field. The second half started, the tiger said, give me the ball. And suddenly the ball was snatched out of his hands. He was slammed to the ground, dazed and confused. The tiger asked, what happened? The other animal said, oh, that was the centipede. You know what a centipede is? They can have up to 300 legs. Okay? Then the lion said, give me the ball. Wham! He too was stripped of the ball, slammed onto the ground. Got up reeling, shakily, and groaned. What in the world was that? And the other animal said, oh, that was a centipede. And then the big, bad, cocky rhinoceros said, pass me the ball. I'll show them. And as he went up to catch the ball, he was hit so hard, he was knocked out cold for five minutes. And when he came to, he said, what was that? And the other animal said, that was the centipede. Finally, the coach of the big animals walked over to the coach for the little animals, and he asked the question, where was the centipede at the first half of the game? And the coach for the little guy says, oh, he was still putting on his shoes. <laughs> Just tell somebody I've been still putting on my shoes. But I'm in the game now. Woo! I'm in the game now. I'm on the playing field now. I've showed up. So I want to talk to you today about passion for God. Amen. I've got a feeling this is going to be the best year CT's ever had. I'm excited about it. This is our year. Can somebody say amen? This is our year. 
Just got our appraisal back on the property where we're at right now. All of you are aware that we need to build a new building. Five services on Sunday. Okay, service Saturday night, service Friday night. We need a new building. Just got our appraisal back on this property. They just appraised it at $4.5 million. Yeah, that's great news. Bought, this is paid for. We only owe $700,000 on all of that property over there on the belt. The property right next to us, you may not know it, we own. That's undeveloped. That appraised at $670,000 right at $700,000. We're getting ready to have a board meeting, hope to break this off, sell that, and that with what we've already got in the bank. And we're well on our way to our building program. <laughs> Hallelujah. Somebody shout praise the Lord here today. So I'm excited. Tell somebody this is our year. Amen. Don't count me out. Centipede just showed up. Just got his shoes on. Amen. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 7. Read this. Seize life. Seize life. Don't even need to read the rest of it. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say sit and wait for life to come to you. It did not say if you wait long enough, life shows up. Or what was the title of that movie? Life Happens. Oh. It said you seize it. Get a hold of it. Get your fingernails in it. Grab it by its shirt collar. You seize life. Then I want to read a portion of scripture that I think is one of the most perplexing scriptures that you're going to read in the Bible. It harkens back to another time and brings up in our memory all that is ugly and bad about even the history of this great nation. Look at Exodus 21, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the judgments which you shall set for, before them. This is what the law is instructing Israel to do. If you buy a Hebrew servant, did you get that? If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And at the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, notice that plainly, says, I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Today I want to speak from the subject God's love slave. God's love slave. We're talking about passion for God. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the incredible benefit that it provides us. It is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Without it, we would not know which way to go or how to walk. And we humbly beseech you today that your word would speak to us in a manner that 
is capable and even will be successful and not just capable, will actually will achieve the purpose for which you sent it, which is to change our lives, change our hearts, change our hearts, change our hearts today. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Everybody shouted amen. There's no way that you can say the word I'm about to say without it being ugly. Slavery is ugly no matter how you enunciate it, no matter what language it is spoken in. Slavery is an ugly thing. As children made in the image of our Heavenly Father, we, all, we believe, particularly people who are born again, believers, we believe that all mankind is created equal. God so loved the world. Not this one, but not that one. He loved the world. And whosoever will, let him come. Mankind is created equal. Sometimes profound adjustments are required to be able to get us going in the right direction. Profound remedies are sometimes required to be able to address profound needs. Other times, slight and minute adjustments can achieve profound results by themselves. I remember when I was younger, back in the old days, guys used to be able to work on their own cars. Y'all remember that? You can't work on your own car, not unless you got all kind of computers and everything else now. Amen. Uh, you don't even want to dare get that wrench out of that toolbox. Just put it back in there and go down to the mechanic. Amen. Once you get started, it's going to cost you a lot more for him to come fix what you got into if you just let him do it by himself. used to not be that way. My wife's father, for example, was a master mechanic. He was by craft a millwright in one of the industries, one of the oil refineries in Louisiana. But he loved to tinker with cars. And I learned early on in my relationship with my father-in-law that I did not like working on cars. And I learned early on to be dumb about some things. Because if I didn't know, then he would do it. And I can learn how to do some stuff, but I had a wonderful mental block that prohibited me from learning how to work on automobiles as long as my father-in-law was there. And he would just happily get out there. And I remember, in those days, a guy could take a screwdriver, you remember this? And he could set the carburetor adjustment. And it didn't require, you didn't go in there and, and, and use that that screwdriver make one big turn with that thing go crazy uh-uh it just required the slightest touch and i would watch my father-in-law lean against uh, lean over that that fender and reach over to that carburetor he was he was a short guy like my wife jerry anyway and and so he would lean over that fender and he had have one foot stuck up in the air like that And he'd have that screwdriver working on that carburetor. And he'd turn that thing. And that engine would be running so ragged and it would smooth out. But he would purposely turn it a little bit too much. And then he would back back. 
back up till he found that happy medium in between the two. The slightest adjustment, and he would tell me, he said, now, son, you, just, you don't need to turn it much. I, I, pop, I, I just can't hardly do that. As long as you're around, I'll just, you know, I don't have an ear for stuff like that. I, I mean, and so he'd do it for me. Slight adjustments can sometimes have profound results because a quarter turned the wrong direction either way, and that car wasn't going to be running the way it needed to. Amen. And sometimes God's Word makes adjustments in our lives that while they may be small or profound in terms of the outcome. I want to talk to you about a problem today. I want to talk to you about something that existed in Bible times that is very difficult for us to be able to understand right now. And part of it is because we have walked through the horrific history as a nation of what subjugating other people and using other people does to not only them but to everybody else involved. Slavery and the forced subjugation and servitude of other human beings is repugnant to all of us, especially as believers, and it is something we can nor never will. We cannot nor never will accept or condone. There was a story not all this Long, all that long ago, oh, state of Ohio, y'all remember it? About a man who kept women that he had kidnapped locked in his basement. Do y'all remember that story? And over time, they managed to get free. And the media announced that these women had been kept as love slaves. When I read that, I thought, oh, no, uh uh-uh, anything but don't call them love slaves. I could hear Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it, you know? You went, there was nothing about love in that situation. He was using them for personal gratification. He had stripped them of their dignity and their independence as human beings and was using them for his own personal gratification. And I completely disagree with the use of the term love slave in that context. Yet I'm here to talk to you about God's love slave and what that means. You may not realize it today, but slavery is actually a bigger problem in the world right now than it has ever been before in the entire history of this planet. I'm serious, it is. According to Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who is the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and founding director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research at Harvard University, more than 29 million people are in slavery as I speak on this platform this morning. That's more than has ever been in slavery at any other time in history. He further states that by contrast, according to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database compiled from all of the records of slaving ships, slave ships during those several centuries when they were importing or shipping slaves across the Atlantic. Listen, this has been edited by professors David Eltis and David Richardson between the years 1525 and 18. 66, there were 12 and a half million African slaves shipped to the New World. 12 and a half million. 
right now there's 29 million slaves in the world. You might be surprised, because I was when I read this, that I'm thinking most of them ended up in America because I know the history of this nation. No, to the contrary, only 388,000 of them were shipped directly to North America, while the rest went to Latin America, the Caribbean, and South America. Brazil by itself received four and a half million African slaves. Didn't know that, did you? I didn't either. Slavery was then and is now a terrible thing. It is just not right. It is morally wrong to hold another person against their will and make them toil for you and you to act like you're better than them. And whether that is condoned by government or whether that is done in violation of law, like was in the case in Ohio, no matter how it's done, it just isn't right. Just isn't right. And governments can say it okay, it's okay, but it's still not okay. Amen. You hear what I'm talking about? Because there is a law that is greater than the laws of the governments of this world. That's the law of God. I have personally visited and been inside some of the dank, damp dungeons and cells in foreign ports like Mombasa, Kenya and Stonetown in Zanzibar, Tanzania, where slaves were actually held until they were put on ships. I've not only been inside these, these dungeons with low ceilings, but you could almost feel the whispers of people echoing from the past and feel the pain of people who were held captive there against their will prior to being placed on ships to be sent to work in somebody's fields, sent to their distant slave masters in foreign lands. I've seen the shackles that are still there and the manacles rusted over that were used to hold them in bondage. And that is a horrific thing. And it shocks me and I am appalled to know that today slavery is more present in our world than it ever has been before. Slavery is rife in North Africa and places like the Sudan and a number of other North African countries. It's rife throughout the Middle East, all over Asia. Slavery is common in places like the Sudan. Groups like the Ganjaweed sweep down, which are, are militant Arabs. They sweep down on their camels and, and in their, their armored vehicles on unsuspecting villages and they kill the elderly, kidnap the inhabitants of a village, and sell the rest, the children and the women, into slavery, sexually abuse them and use them until they're sold, even small children. They're sold into slavery. There are some activist Christian groups in America that I could mention today, ministers that are connected with them whose names you probably have heard, and you might even be surprised to know we have in this very church a ministry that is working to help free slaves where people go over to these countries and they help try to set them free. But some of these groups have literally set slaves free, bought their freedom from their, their Arab masters literally six and seven times. They go back home in the same bunch, sweep down on the village again somewhere in the future over the next year or two, take them off captive and sell them into slavery and, and buy them back and set them free again and it's a problem that the world 
leadership has failed to address correctly and resolve. Elsewhere, because of extreme poverty in our world, it is commonly said that if America sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold when it comes to the economy. And I can tell you that if you think things were hard here during this recent downturn, then you just didn't even want to live in some of the countries around the world where we have ministries and we are operating and functioning. And people in these countries, the poor are offered in place, uh, employment in places like Saudi Arabia or Dubai, the United Arab Emirates. And you know what they do? They have to go to their village and they are so poor they can't even raise the money for the application fee because all of these groups charge an application fee. You have to fill out an application and give them money and then they claim they're going to find you a job overseas in one of these countries. This is happening every single day. I've literally met some of the people that have been through the process, some of them that have been in slavery, and I've also had a chance to confront some of the people who were carrying on this, this so-called business, which is really enslaving others. Now listen to me. You know what they do? They go around and they, they, they collect money from everybody in the village. Is that Christine I see sitting over here? Amen. No, no. Yeah, there she is. She's one of those. Christine, just stand up. I'm so proud of you. This is Christine Vargas. She's actually involved in trying to help set free some of these people. And uh, came to me two years ago about this, this, this project that she was involved in. She was working with. I didn't even see her until just now. But these people go to their village, and everybody contributes a few shillings, a little bit of money until they get enough to finally fill out the application. And this is their understanding. We're going to go represent our family and our village and, and we're going to go get this good job that's going to pay money and we're going to send money back to our poor folk in the village and our families. And, and you know what they do? They get on a plane and they fly to some distant destination and it turns out that they're not getting a job. They're actually going into slavery. Their passports are confiscated. They're beaten routinely, used sexually. And they're told, you've got to raise the money to pay back for the price of your ticket. Now, here's what's tragic. The people that are the middlemen have already been paid by the ones that are buying these folk. But now then they're insisting, you've got to pay us back also for the ticket. And it's the worst kind of slavery. And so they can be locked into this for years used and abused, and I've met both men and women who have been involved in this and have been used in a terrible, terrible way. And their passports, as I said, are held where they can't travel back. Even if they escape, they can't get out of the country. They're beaten, they're starved, they're sexually assaulted. They're made to, to live in conditions that you wouldn't want to put a dog in. They refuse their wages. Slavery is a common and accepted practice in middle in Middle Eastern countries today and in, in a number of Asian countries. For example, even in India, the, Pakistan, places like that, they, the poor will come down out of their tribal villages and go to, into the main cities like, like Mumbai or Hyderabad or, or Delhi thinking they're going to find work and instead end up in slavery held by organized crime. And many of these, as I said, are women and children. This goes on not only overseas, but are you ready for this? 
you may not know it, but Houston, Texas, was one, according to the FBI, is one of the main trafficking centers for human slavery in the world today. Amen. Come on, I need somebody to hear what I'm talking about. That's right. One of the main centers for human trafficking is the city we live in. It's hard then for me to conceive of a circumstance or imagine a situation knowing the horrors of slavery, and I've met slaves. Hard for me to conceive of a circumstance where somebody would choose to be a slave. Choose that. Make that their choice. I was one time in India, and without any disrespect to the country, because I'll be going there a week from today, Benny Matthews, and we're doing a training session, and I'll be speaking in one of the churches there where you may not even realize that a lot of the Bollywood actors and actresses are actually Christians, and the pastors invited me to come and speak there, and Benny's my son. They've got thousands of churches there now. And we're connected to them, and I want you to pray because I want this to be a time of impact. But I remember I was in one of those meetings years ago, and uh, I met, you may or may not have heard of the Australian missionaries. I think they were called the Steins, Steins or something like that. And they were burned alive by radical Hindus in India. I met them. I was staying in the same hotel with them. We were eating in the same little restaurant. And after I left, these people lost their lives, were killed, state of Orissa. And while I was in that restaurant, there were a couple little children, no bigger than this, that were actually waiting on the tables. And I'm thinking these are the children of the proprietor of the restaurant. And while I'm sitting there, the person that I'm with, who is Asian Indian from that country, points out to me that these are slaves. And I want to leave a little something for them as a tip, and I, let, I gave them a little money, but the guy who was managing the restaurant, when he saw it, I saw him when the little boys went back to the back. You could see and back toward the kitchen area. He began to abuse them and made him, them give him the little money I had given them as a tip. And I wanted to get, a, I, I mean, fee-fi-fo-fum. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking of my grandchildren. That could be my grandkids right there. And the guy that I was with, the pastor I was with, explained it to me that these are kids from the mountainous tribal region that their families have sent to work in the village, work now in the city because there's no employment in the village. And so these kids are literally sold to these people to work for them while the family takes the money because they got a bunch of other kids. One thing we don't have is money. One thing we do have is kids. <laughs> and these little children, seven, eight, nine years old, are literally supporting the family. And I was horrified when I saw that. Just shocked. When I look at this scripture in the Bible, all of this is what I've got to process. I'm seeing a man who is a servant that in circumstances not unlike what I've just described, in a harsh time in history when there were a lot of poor people and some didn't even make it, here is a man who would go to someone and say to them, 
this to a person that had money. I will serve you and I will be your indentured servant. And if you will give me a certain amount of money, I will give it to my family back home so they can get the crop in because we're all starving or so that they can get the business off the ground. And for six years, I will be your servant. And the seventh year, I'm going free because seven is the number of completion and eight is the new beginning. And so I'll come and I'll serve you And you give me the money, I'll give it to my family. But at the end of six years and the seventh year, I'm leaving. And they would do that deliberately. Now, that's being hard up. That's being in a desperate place. And most of us living in today's world cannot relate to a circumstance that is so dire and difficult that someone is reduced to doing that. But this is the context that is being described. God said, if you have somebody come to you and he and his family are starving and he offers to work for you for a certain sum of money and becomes your servant for six years, you give him the money and you keep him for six years. But if during that six years he sees someone in your house and falls in love and they start having children and all of a sudden he discovers my master is a really good guy, there is a provision made in Scripture where at the end of that six-year period, he could go to his master and say, I don't want to leave. Hmm. Hmm. Now just stay with me just a moment. Because freedom is so precious to me that it's really hard for me to wrap my mind around the idea that somebody at the end of six years would not just walk out the door and say, see ya, I'm gone. But there was literally the possibility that the man during the six years would fall in love with his master. And his master would be such a good man that he would not want to leave when the six years were over. You might not even realize this, but in America, it wasn't just Africans that were put in positions like that. According to history in the 17th and 18th centuries, In colonial America, one half of the white settlers who settled in America came to America as indentured servants. That is, they sold themselves into slavery for a certain period of time to get the opportunity to come over here and start a new life. And so no matter which way you look at it, most Americans have somebody in their ancestral tree. Somewhere back yonder, All of us knew what it was like to have somebody telling us what to do. And it's hard for me to envision that a man could then go to his master, knowing what I've read about slaves, knowing what I've seen happen in Africa and in Asia, knowing what I saw happen to those two little seven, eight-year-old boys in that restaurant, knowing what I've seen happen to people that went and applied for jobs and ended up being slaves whose passports were confiscated, knowing what I've seen go on, the stories that I've read, the horror stories. It's hard for me to believe that anybody would ever want to be in that circumstance. But here's what I got to tell you. There were, on occasion, masters that were good. Hmm. And they bailed the person out of the problem that they were in. Oh, I wish somebody could help me. And at the end of six years, the servant realized I had it better off in my master's house than I was out there when I was out there on my own. 
Now just stay with me because I'm going to preach to you right now. Mm. You see, there comes a point in serving God when something needs to happen in your life. When you first come to God, you come because you needed something. Am I making myself clear, clear right now? The man got in the situation because he was the one in need. And he went to where he could get his need fixed. He went to somebody that had the assets and the resources that could help him out. And that's what happened when I got saved. I went to somebody that could help me out in my trouble. Oh, am I talking to anybody here? that remembers what it was like. It wasn't the good old days for me, oh no. God had to reach down in the miry pit and bring me up out of the clay. God had to wash me off and I'm talking to some of you that came from backgrounds like I came from and I know what it was like to be addicted and strung out and I know what it was like to have messed up my life and when I came to God, I needed help. I didn't come to God because everything was going so well. I didn't come to God to say, thank you, I'm having a great life. Oh no, very few of us came to God in the circumstances like that. Some of us, it was a family breakup. Some of us, it was an addictive problem. Some of us were on the verge of suicide. Some of us were facing depression. Some of us had been through economic hardship. And one day Jesus, the master, came along and said, I can help you out of that. Amen. And we came to him because we needed something. And we found out that he had the resources to help us. But I can't tell you that when I came to him, I loved him. Uh-uh, what's love got to do, got to do with it. Amen. I came because my back was against the wall. I came because I was down and out and needed hope. I came because I had nobody else to turn to. I didn't know who he was or what he was. I didn't know him well enough to know if I could believe in him or ever love him. But the longer I've been in the master's house, am I talking to somebody right now? The longer I've served the master, the more in love with him I have come to be. I came here seeking for refuge, but the longer I've been here, the more wonderful I found out he is. I didn't know what kind of guy he might be. When I first walked down an aisle in that little spirit-filled church and gave my heart to God, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was grasping at straws. I was looking for help. But now that I've been here a little while, I want to tell him I love you so much that I don't ever want to leave and I'm not going anywhere. And How do you deal with a subject like this with sensitivity? How can you possibly address something as ugly as slavery with all of its horrors and help us understand a principle in God's Bible that needs to be understood? Because when you, got first, when you first got saved, you were just like me. But there comes a point when just coming to God for what you need isn't gonna carry it. There comes a point when I'm not in church anymore 
just because I want to be blessed and I need help and I need to be healed and I need my marriage fixed and I need to get off drugs and Alcoholics Anonymous couldn't help me so here I am and no, uh-uh, there comes a point when if I'm going to stay it's got to stop being about me and it needs to be about him and hello somebody he bailed me out when I was in trouble and helped me when nobody else could and was there for me when I needed him, but the longer I've been around him, the more I've come to realize he's the great and the morning star. He's beautiful beyond comparison. There's nobody like him. Because if you're just here for what you can get, there's a time when Jesus comes to you and says the fishes and loaves stop today. There was a multitude that followed him and they too, like the servant that sold himself into indentured servanthood, were following Jesus because he was meeting all their needs. But one day he said to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have any part with me. And all of those he had healed and all of those that had eaten the fish and the loaves, and all of those that he had watched him raise people from the dead and unstop deaf ears, you know what they did? They turned around and walked off. But there was a group of them, a cadre, a small group left. His 12 disciples, he turned and said, do you want to leave too? And you know what they did? They did what the servant in the book of Exodus did. They said, we're not going anywhere. You are the ones that have the words. Uh, you are the one that has the words of eternal life. Here's my ear. I want you to put it against the door of your house. I want you to, to know I've made up my mind. I'm not leaving come hell or high water. I'm here from here on out. Oh. Mm. I've fallen in love with my master. And if there's one thing that I want to preach that we need as a congregation to personally embrace as individuals, it's passion for God. Why are you here? Why are you here? I know what brought you here, but why are you here right now? I know what came, what, was, what the need was when you came. In psychology, they call it the presenting problem. I know what your presenting problem was. I know what made you choose to come to church. But what I'm asking you is, why are you still here now? There comes a time when you need to look at him and say, I had needs when I first walked in the door, but I'm not going anywhere. My life's good right now. I love my wife and I love my kids and you bless my family and I'm not leaving this place. Uh-uh. Amen, I'm not going anywhere. I choose to be your love slave from here on out. He would walk up. There was a provision made in the book of Exodus where we would walk over to the door of the house. You know why it was the door of the house? It had to be visible where everybody saw it. <laughs> You can tell when somebody is in church for what they can get and if they're here just because they love him. Amen. Hear what I'm talking about. He wanted you to be standing at the door where a whole neighborhood could watch you make your choice because there's something, when somebody, there's something about somebody choosing 
to love God because they just love him. That's all. I just love him. I just love him. I just, I just love him. That's more compelling than if you choose to serve him because he bailed you out when you had nobody else to turn to. So in the presence of all of the people, the man had to go stand at the door and say, here's my ear. And he would put his earlobe against the door and the master would drive the awl through his earlobe into the door. Now that signified several things. Number one, it meant the servant was saying, I'm marked for my master for the rest of my life. I'm going to carry this scar for as long as I live. Oh, I need somebody to say amen. When you see me and you see this, you know I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. God help us. This is a call to all of the saints in the Lord's secret service. It's time to come out and make yourself known now. And let somebody know why you're here. Let your community know why you're serving. I'm preaching better than some of you are responding right now. Preach, pastor. Yes, I think I will. Hallelujah. Amen. I'm marked for God. I'm thinking about Paul who said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you look at me, I want you to know who I belong to. I don't want there to be any doubt in your mind when I walk in the room. I want you to sense God just walked in the room with me. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Number two, when the servant was marked and that all was driven through his door, it meant that the servant was saying, I am now forever connected to this house and to this master. Forever connected. Did you get that? This is not a passing whim or fancy. This is not just a phase I'm going through. <laughs> uh-uh. I'm not moving on in two years. I'm here to stay. I'm connected to this. Oh, you're not hearing me. I'm connected to this house. In this day of egocentric Christianity, when everybody's out for what they get, hello, somebody, and people are afraid to make a commitment, you know what the man was saying? I'm connected to the master's house from here on out. If next year there are bad times, I'm still here. If there are good times, I'm still here. In fact, the times and the seasons don't have anything to do with it. I made a decision through good and bad, I'm still here. I'm going to praise him regardless of what's going on. Bad diagnosis or not, like Donnie preached in a funeral yesterday in this very building. A naked came I into this world, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord giveth, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In good times and bad, he's still the same. It's not going to shake my commitment to him. If I lose everything I've got today, I'm still serving him tomorrow. I'm still serving him next week. I'm still serving him next year. Somebody give him some praise right now. You'll have to forgive me. I feel my preach coming on. I just... I feel something moving in this room right now. I'm not here for the fishes and the loaves. And 
I'm here because I love my master. I love my master. I love my master. He's been good to me. Mm -hmm. You see the master next door. He doesn't treat his, his servants the way my master treats me. Uh-uh, other masters may be cruel, but I love my master. I tried a lot of things and I've been a servant to a lot of things, but nobody's ever treated me like Jesus has treated me and nobody's ever loved me the way Jesus has loved me and nobody's ever blessed me the way Jesus has blessed me and nobody's ever made me feel the way God has made me feel on the inside. I love my master. It thirdly meant that the servant had ownership in the house now. Because you see, when he put his ear up against the door and they drove that all through it, it was his blood that was now mixed into the wood of that doorpost. Huh. Stained it, left a mark on it. God knows I want to leave my mark on his house. I want my life to count for something. I'm taking ownership here. You hear what I'm saying? I've got blood invested now. I'm not just coasting around from church to church. I've got, oh, I didn't say that. Forgive me here. Amen. I've got ownership here. Amen. And what I'm really teaching you is everybody needs to find a place to connect where they can invest their life and invest their blood and invest their finances and invest their destiny into the destiny of something even bigger than themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And the kingdom of God provides you that opportunity. Number four, as I said, it not only marked me for the master, not only meant that I'm forever staying connected to him, and not only meant that I now have blood in this thing. I've got some, put, tell somebody, get some skin in the game. Would you do that? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. Amen. Put something into it. Take ownership. But it also means I love my master. Hallelujah. When you see this mark right here, you know that I love my master. What am I trying to tell you? Hallelujah to the Lamb of God. It's not a problem for me to come to church on Sunday morning. Can I do my Stevie Wonder imitation again? It's not a problem for me to get up when it's raining. It's not a problem for me to be in the house of God on Super Bowl Sunday. I don't care what they got going on. I love my master. And if I can show him I love him, I've got to tell him. And, and that's why it's not a problem for me to pray. It's not a problem for me to worship God. Oh, no. You say, you look at, you look at pastor. He's never had a problem in his life. Look at the way he's worshiping. I don't let what happens out there affect the way that I act in here. And number five, it meant that the servant had arrived at this decision all by himself. He wasn't coerced. Nobody held a Glock 9 millimeter to his head. Nobody forced him to do it. He said, I want to do this. And in the presence of the entire community, he walked up to that door and said, here, put it right there. Amen. No one coerced him into making this decision. This law about an indentured servant choosing to become a servant forever is an analogy of what this, uh, the scripture describes happens to us as believers. I look at another New Testament example, and I'm closing right now. 
The Apostle Paul was one of those that made this kind of decision. Do you know that eight times in the New Testament, Paul refers to himself as the prisoner of the Lord? Read in Ephesians 4 and 1, and there are seven others. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Who is he? Prisoner, say it with me. Prisoner of who? Come on, help me out, prisoner. Didn't say the prisoner of the Romans. Didn't say the prisoner of the Jews. They were the ones holding the key to his cell. But he was really the prisoner of the Lord. When he knew he was going to be arrested because he was preaching in church to church and he would go to different cities and when he would show up and preach in a church, always the prophetic voices within these churches would say, Paul, thus says the Lord, you're going to be bound when you go to Jerusalem. And you know what, Paul, they even on one occasion took his belt and tied his hands up with their belt, his own belt, Agabus the prophet did. You remember the story? And said, you're going to be bound just like this. And Paul said, I'm going anyway. You know why? Because I'm God's prisoner, not the prisoner of the Romans. I'm not the prisoner of the Jews. I'm God's prisoner, amen. Philippians 3 and 12, he goes on to explain, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. I love the particular word that it is used there, apprehend. To apprehend means to take into custody, to capture, to seize. Paul said, I got captured before the Romans ever laid a hand on me. <laughs> you hear what I'm talking about? All these things on my hands are, not, are no, not what are holding me here. It's the manacles on my heart. God captured my heart. And that's what I'm preaching. In the year 2014, let's have passion for God. Let God capture our heart. I conclude by contrasting that story and that law with another servant whose master didn't treat him so well. 1 Samuel 30 tells us that David and his men were living at a place called Ziklag. And they went to fight a battle, and whenever they came back, in their absence, the Amalekites had swept down, a mixture of Amalekites and Egyptians teamed up together, and swept down upon their wives and their children while the men were away at battle. And they captured David's family, the families of all of his, his men, and carried their wives and their children away. And the men came back from war exhausted. And when they saw their houses burn, reduced to glowing embers and ashes, and their families gone and carried away captive, they all sat down and began to weep. They were so discouraged. And David said, basically, he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord said, go after them. You will recover all. You see, that's the difference in being God's slave in the world's. The world will take everything you got. When you're God's love slave, he gives you everything back. Or oh, somebody in the building say amen. Tell somebody this is my year to be blessed. Would you do it? Tell somebody this is my year to get it all back. Everything the enemy stole from me, I'm getting it back this year. I'm, it's going to be returned with interest this year. So David went out looking, he and his men, following the trail left in the dust where his family had been kidnapped and carried away, the trail left by his captors and now their families that had been seized. And they came upon an abandoned man in the field, 
a man that was sick, burning up with fever, and about to die. And when they came upon him, David, the Old Testament type of the New Testament Messiah, found the man that nobody else would want it. Nobody else wanted it. Am I talking to anybody right now? Found what everybody else had left behind and saw no value in. And David said, I can help this guy. Picked him up and revived him. Nursed him back to health. Gave him some fruit to eat. Amen. Until the man's strength was restored. And then David asked him the question, do you know anything about our families that were kidnapped the other day? And the man said, yes. He said, I was a servant to an Egyptian who was mean and cruel. And David said, can you bring us to where they're at? Can you show us where they are? We'd like to get our families back. And in 1 Samuel 30 and 15, this is what the servant said. He said, swear to me before God that you will not kill me or hand me over to my old master and I'll take you down to them. Wow. He said, yeah, I can help you. Just don't kill me. And whatever you do, don't make me go back to my old master. And if there's anything that I have to say, I just want to say, don't make me go back to my old master. I love the one I'm with right now. He's been good to me. Can somebody in the building say hallelujah? He found me and picked me up. Nursed my life back to health when nobody saw any good in me. I was used and abused and abandoned by the old master and left to die and go into eternity without God. But then the David of heaven came along. My Messiah, hallelujah, walked by and found me when nobody else wanted to do anything for me. And he picked me up and said, I see value in you. And he restored my life that the enemy had snatched away. And I tell you, I've reached a point in my life now. I know why I came to church. All those years ago, I came because I needed him. But that's not why I'm staying now. I'm staying because, not because I have needs, and I do. But I'm staying because I found out how good he is. I don't want to go anywhere else. 